Listener Production. Hi, I'm Dilrup Jai Singer. My health and wellness journey began when I lost over 30 kilos. Since then, I've learned how focusing on being healthy both physically and mentally can turn your life around and put you in the driver's seat. And it isn't all eating kale and doing 100 burpees either, although we probably will talk about that. I'm lucky enough to be joined by experts as well as a bunch of idiot comedy mates of mine to talk everything from weight loss to waking up refreshed. Um, without the meditation music and wind chimes, please. My weight loss journey came about me learning to understand the unhealthy relationship that I had with food. And like I've previously discussed, I also faced a number of challenges when it came to my relationship with alcohol. For me, alcohol was something that really did serve a good purpose when I first moved to the country and allowed me to break out of my comfort zone and mask some of the insecurities I had about trying to make new friends. However, I got to the stage when I realized that while alcohol was a great servant, it was a terrible master. And as soon as alcohol started taking over my life, it really started to derail me and move me away from the things that truly made me happy. My next guest knows all too well, addiction can happen to anyone. It could be cigarettes, gambling, alcohol, food, the list goes on. Professor Dan Lubman joins me to unpack how addiction takes hold of your life and the negative impact it has on it. But we'll also discuss the first steps you can take for a better future if addiction is something that you're currently struggling with. Professor Dan, thank you so much for joining me. I guess my first question is something I've been thinking about for the last 30 years, which is what is addiction and how is it different to say just compulsive behavior? Look, I mean, that's a fantastic question. What is addiction simply? You know, simply, mm. as the community would understand it, it it's, it's using a drug such as alcohol or, or other types of drugs or gambling, so doing a behavior to such an extent that it takes up more and more of your time. So using it more than you intend to do, you're spending more money on it than you want to do, that you're sacrificing other bits in your life to sort of pursue that behavior. And it's creating a whole range of difficulties for you. So it's getting in the way of things that you really want to do. So that sort of feeling that you're losing control. So that's that at the extreme. The fundamental question is, is not what it is, but what makes you vulnerable to get there and and what is really underlying that? Yeah, because because I was sometimes felt that with the addiction that I have dealt with in my life, it gets to that point where the actual reward of the action starts to go down and it almost feels like I'm doing it in spite of knowing that it's not going to make me happy. And for me, that was such a bizarre feeling to know that I am still doing the behavior with full awareness that this is detrimental to my net happiness. And I found like that's when I realized this is a little bit more challenging than just having lacking discipline in my life. Absolutely right. And I think, you know, the addiction is an end product of a whole pathway that people have made choices around or tried to deal with issues in their life. So personally, I've seen tens of thousands of people. And part of that journey is around not focusing on the addiction, but understanding how did you get to this space that you're in a position now where you're doing something that you recognize is not good for your health, is not good for you and you want to stop, but you somehow are struggling to do that. So to actually get people to really address their addiction, we have to go back and understand how did you actually get there? The underlying issues. And I think most people, like all the drugs we were talking about, whether it's alcohol or illicit drugs or gambling, essentially these are drugs that change our mental state. We're taking them to a sort of affect 
how we feel about things. And we know mm. that the biggest drivers of why people in the general community drink or use drugs or gamble is to get pleasure, to sort of have fun. Is it like chasing dopamine, essentially, and finding different ways to get it? Yeah, it is about, I mean, the drugs and behaviors that we can get addicted to essentially all increase dopamine and part of the brain that's been designed to reward behaviors that are critical for survival. Things like eating, drinking, having young, so having sex and looking after mm. our young, all those things are really important for the survival of species. And we've all developed a reward circuitry in our brain that says when we do these things that are really good for us for our survival, right. we're going to hit a dopamine, so it encourages that behavior. The issue that we have here is, is that as humans, we're always trying to manipulate our environment to maximize you know, what we can get out of it. And what we've found from the earliest time, from rotten fermenting apples, you know, you know, early in civilization through to sophisticated sort of online gambling now is that we can manipulate our environment or, or products in the environment that actually mean that we get a big hit of dopamine and make us feel good and affect our mental state. And, and so we've got this circuit that reinforces that behavior. Mm. These things are attractive for us and that's why we all choose to do them and that's why we have all industries pushing these products on us and sort of encouraging us to choose their product. But the other thing to say is it's not just about feeling good. We also know that what these products are good at is they're also very strong emotional analgesics. So they're very good of when we're feeling down or sad or anxious or in pain emotionally, these products, alcohol, drugs, gambling, can actually numb us, emotionally numb us, so that often it's about escaping really negative experiences. And so we've got this constant drive of helping us to feel good, but also dealing with a lot of emotional pain. They are core drivers of why we choose to engage you know, in either drinking, using drugs, or gambling. We all experience that to some degree. The issue, though, is, is why people continue to use and what stops you from not putting some limits on that use. And what's going to happen over time is not only do you have the underlying problem that you're using these substances or activities to sort of manage, but then using these drugs or gambling sort of repeatedly changes our brain because our brain is very good at trying to restore balance. So we have something called hemostasis, which is sort of Every time we sort of rock the boat, our body's trying to come back to where it was. And so if you're constantly feeding the brain with things that affect our reward system, affect our emotional system, the brain adapts to try and counter that. Mm. And so what happens over time is as people use more and more, those substances no longer have that sort of high that, that we used to get. That pleasure is sort of diminished. Evidence that actually shows that the whole reward system resets. So it's actually harder to get pleasure in anything, even everyday things anymore, when you've been using a long time. Right. So you, you certainly not only don't get pleasure from it, you actually don't get pleasure from everyday life. Right. Because you've gotten so used to, at an extreme level, how exciting things can get. Yeah. And I've had plenty of people talk to me and say, because I've been using, you know, been using these drugs. Initially, you know, I was getting the high, but now, even seeing my family or engaging in sport or doing things I used to love, yeah, they don't do it for me anymore. It's like if you've flown business class for a year straight, and how difficult it would be to be on the tram. 
Exactly. Right. And then at the same time, the other part of the brain, as I say, the, the brain, the emotional analgesic, so it affects a different part of our brain, our emotional system, structures like the amygdala, which is really important in you know, how we process emotion and particularly negative emotions. So if we're constantly using these drugs or activities to sort of help us regulate difficult emotions, what actually happens is that part of the brain adapts as well. And suddenly we actually have a, an overactivation in those areas. So what's happening is we're getting more negative emotions. So initially we're trying to suppress them, the brain's changing out. And not only now do we not get a high, but we're actually feeling more miserable mm. and we're getting more you know, negative effects of use. What happens is, is not only do we have the core problem, but all of a sudden we're feeling crap. We're not enjoying anything. Mm. And we've got these terrible sort of feelings of angst and distress that the drugs, the alcohol, the gambling helps quieten for a period of time. But then we're left sort of in this miserable state that drive people to continue using because they're stuck in this cycle. And they've got this underlying issue that they haven't haven't got another coping strategy for, and, and so they feel stuck. Personally, I found with alcohol, even though it was such a big part of my life, I've been able to go cold turkey and haven't sipped even one bit of alcohol since. However, food, specifically fried and sugary, salty deliciousness, the levels that I'm eating it at, I know is dangerous to my well-being, yet I cannot switch on that that handbrake that I was able to do for alcohol. I think for me, one of the things that have helped me at least deal with it is firstly acknowledging that when I'm craving stuff, I, I'm sort of reminding myself, hey, you are up against actual scientists who are studying ways to get you more hooked onto this. You know, they spent millions of dollars to figure out how to get food as addictive as possible. So I'm trying to learn and accept that going, okay, hey, don't beat yourself up too much if you find yourself slipping up here and there. But it's about just going, when it starts tipping into compulsive behavior where I've done it five nights in a row, that's when I need to start being hard on myself. A number of things just wanted to pull out there. I mean, I think the first thing is is around that reflection, isn't it? The first step is just to step back a bit and reflect on what are we actually doing, you yeah. know? For, for many of us, because we live busy lives, because, you know, as you say, industry have told us that it's okay to have a drink mm. when you're feeling stressed or it's okay to have a punt when we're feeling stressed or it's okay to have a, a family box when we're feeling stressed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think for us, often we're doing this without thinking. And I think stepping back and actually for all of us just reflecting on having time to reflect on how much am I drinking or smoking or using or gambling or eating – Having time just to reflect on that, I think that's so important is that issue of just being aware of what we're doing. Even before we, even if we don't want to do anything about it, it's so important that we're actually just aware of what we're doing. And then that comes, you know, documenting that, having a really good awareness of what we're actually doing. And then taking a step back and saying, well, is that a problem or not a problem? Mm. How much am I spending on it? How much time is it consuming? What is it doing to my health? What is it doing to my relationship? How is it impacting on my workplace or on other relationships? We just need to reflect and have a think about that. Once you've made a decision about whether that is something that's you feel is maybe a bit out of control, then it's around, well, what do I do about that? What are some of the work you've done in terms of addiction around with truck drivers or people doing overnight shifts and sort of inconsistent lifestyle? Yeah, look, I think, you know, we live in a 24-7 society. I think particularly coming out of COVID, we're all used to sort of 
doing a lot more online shopping and expecting things to, to come instantaneously. And so you know, there's a whole workforce out there that needs to constantly available, often at difficult hours in terms of sort of satisfying all our needs. And, and truck drivers or 20 people who work shift work, it means sitting down for long periods of time. Often it means working at hours that are sort of a working against our body clock. I think nobody wants to be in pain. So I think anything that we can do to reduce pain, you know, emotional pain or physical pain, putting things into place that actually limits that. So that's either things that people can do, for example, in the workplace. So if you're a truck driver, for example, it's around your seating, sort of how often you're sitting down for, how often you're exercising, what your weight is. All those things are obviously really critical. We live busy lives. We're often looking for instantaneous solutions. And it's about understanding that all the choices that we make, you know, potentially come back to bite us. I think having a good support network, having, you know, a good friendship group where people can be honest with you, you know, having a partner or family members, you know, actually having honest conversations around things that make you happy and things that you can work on. All those conversations are critically important in us constantly trying to be the best person that we are and making sure that we're staying as healthy as we can and being the best version of ourselves. If I look at just my case where I quit drinking in 2016 when there were multiple rock bottoms that I sh- should have quit drinking before that, but it, there was a real time delay between when I felt that maybe this is a problem versus when I actually took action. What do you think if I'm a listener now thinking, going, hey, you know, what are the questions I should be asking myself around my behavior, whether it's gambling, alcohol, uh, drugs, or anything like that, as to the questions worth asking yourself to check in to make sure you're on top of it versus something that's basically headed for a danger zone. Just before I answer that question, I think one of the issues that you're raising here is around that we need to talk about is around stigma and shame. When we're talking about alcohol, drugs and gambling, or even sort of problems, as you're saying, with overconsumption of eating too much sort of fatty and sugary foods and putting on weight, all these things are incredibly stigmatized in the community. We're told the message is, We should all eat, gamble, drink responsibly. And so if you don't do that, then, you know, there's something inherently flawed in yourself. There's something wrong with you. And so one of the problems here we have in this delay in seeking help or admitting you've got a problem is that you're going to be judged not only by yourself, but by everyone around you. And so I don't want to admit I've got a problem because that's saying that in some way there's something wrong with me mm. and, and people are going to judge me and, and make comment about me. I think that's a really hard thing to do. So uh, as long as these issues are so heavily stigmatized and we don't talk about them, or we have all these myths and misconceptions around this topic. It's very hard for people, even though they might think they might have a problem, to put their hand up and, and be honest about it because it's really frightening to admit I might have this problem because what does that say about me mm. and how are that going to be perceived and how am I going to be judged? So I think one of the things we need to talk about is the fact that these are some of the most stigmatized health conditions globally and that impacts on help seeking and impacts on being honest about whether I've got a problem or not. So it just starts with going, that's okay to acknowledge that this might be an issue. And just because it is an issue doesn't mean that you're broken. There's no shame in admitting that you might need help with this. Exactly. And, and I think the challenge is, is, is what we see in the media. So what we see on TV, what we see in films, when we're thinking about things like addiction, for example, is these stereotypes of 
what a drunk person, you know, what, what an alcoholic looks like, what somebody who has a, a drug addiction looks like, what a gambling addiction looks like. We see these characters on TV shows or in the media or in news stories. And for most everyday people, the people that I see every day who struggle with addiction, they look nothing like these people we see on TV or on the films. Mm. So all of a sudden you've got this problem. I think, oh, I must have a problem. And then you see what, you know, somebody with alcohol or drug problem looks like on TV and you think, that is not me. Mm. And so there's this issue that how do I understand? I know something's wrong with me. I know I might be having a problem here, but I'm nowhere like the guy that's on TV. So I can't be that bad. So I can't have that much of a problem. You know, I won't look for help. Yeah. Whenever we were talking about addiction in the news, it's in the crime section of newspapers. You know, that's where all the stories around addiction are. I think that's the challenge and, and it links to things that you were saying as part of your story is it's very confusing. Do I have a problem or not? Mm. As we know, one in four people will struggle with an alcohol, drug or gambling problem at some time in their life. One in 20 people will struggle with an addiction, you know, the more severe form of that. And so we, we need to give those messages of hope. We need to talk about the fact that this is in, it's really treatable. You know, we've got great interventions out there. We can really help people. But if people are delaying 10 years, 20 years before they get help because they're so scared of the stigma and the judgment, as we know with any health disorder, if we wait 20 years before we go and seek help for cancer, mm. you've got a whole range of other problems, physical, mental health, social, relationship, financial problems that make it harder to treat. So we need to get people to seek help earlier. And in terms of rethinking addiction and the information around that, where would you direct our listeners to go find out more information if they want to hear more about what you're doing with Turning Point? Yeah, the, I mean, I think what's really great in the space is there's so much information out there and I encourage people to explore what is out available there because I think, as I said before, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of misconceptions. You know, arm yourself with information. So you can check out our Rethink Addiction website, rethinkaddiction.org.au. There's lots of helplines that are available out there. Come to the Turning Point website. Lots of inf- interesting information on there, turningpoint.org.au. We also run a national online counselling services, counsellingonline.org.au. If people are worried and, and, and want to ask questions, no shame, no judgment, give us a call, have a chat, get informed and get help. Excellent. Thank you so much, Professor Dan Lubman. Really appreciate you taking the time. And that's, yeah, I'm glad I don't feel as alone as I did six years ago when I was trying to get sober. So I appreciate you sharing everything. Thank you so much. Real pleasure to be here. My next guest is none other than the beloved comedian Dave Husey Hughes. Husey is the first ever stand-up comedian that I watched live back in 2006 when I was an eager uni student. I'm lucky to call him a mate, so much so that this particular chat, we're actually going to be talking about something not very comedy heavy. It's about addiction and the struggles that Husey has had in his life with addiction, ranging from things early on in his career versus stuff that's happened in the last three months. Husey, thank you so much for coming on this episode. I feel a bit bad, first of all, bringing you on an episode titled Around Addiction. Dilruk, thanks for having me. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm very happy to be here mm. on the addictions episode yeah. because, yes, I'm a, I'm a good person to speak to. Yeah, from multiple elements of it in terms of understanding addiction and then fixing it, but then also still finding new addictions, some that yeah. service you well, some that don't. So the first one we've got to start off with is drinking. I think you've been sober off the grog for, what, 30 plus years now? You know what, we are right around my uh, 30-year anniversary. 
I was 21 at the time when I gave up drinking. I was a heavy drinker from the age of probably 14 or 15. Really? As a, yeah. Warnable? So, Warnable, country Victoria where it's one of the biggest drinking areas in Australia. I think the stats mm. have been done that is, yeah. So I was uh, heavily into getting really, really drunk. Have when, you got an example that you're comfortable sharing? That oh, yeah, just to... getting locked up sort of. I was never a violent drunk as a young man, but I was – a hopeless drunk, so I would uh, basically black out. So yeah. you know, and you wake up in the police cells, or you wait. I, I once I got so drunk, apparently, I woke up at home. But then I'd slowly come to the realization when you're lying in bed. Oh, hang on, I can't remember. After about ooh, probably about six o'clock last night, I can't remember anything. And yeah. it's like, and then I walked out into the uh, lounge room this morning, and my mother said, "Well, you've achieved your objective." And I'm like, "What are you talking about?" She said, "Your day in court." And I said. What do you mean? And then she showed me an arrest sheet. And I'd been locked up uh, drunk and disorderly the night before. But not I'd been so drunk that I couldn't even remember getting let out. Right. So like, the blackout up to being arrested had gone past that. The blackout had continued yeah. to the the, the, you know, the four or six hours or however long I was in the cells. Uh-huh. And it continued to getting home. About a week later, I got pulled over by a taxi as I was driving along. This taxi driver just cut me off in traffic. I'm like the hell's going on here? And then the guy got out of his taxi really angry. I said, what's happening, man? And he said, you remember me? I said, no. He said, I drove you home from the police cells last week and you said you were going to go in and get some money for me. And just never came and out. I never came out. <laughs> <laughs> I said, sorry, man, I can't remember that at all. And anyway, I found the money. One of the problems is culturally we seem to, as an identity, hold us as Aussies going, oh, yeah, we were big drinkers and... You yeah. know, especially masculinity is linked to being able to hold your grog. Absolutely. You get in a shout and you've got to stay in the shout, which is, means that every, everyone has to drink the same amount. Ah. And some people are better at drinking than others. And so that you can drink people under the table or get drunk under the table yourself by someone else who can hold their liquor better than you. So, I mean, that was my, my youth, basically, just so, getting absolutely so, smashed. I mean, for me as well, my self-esteem was linked in uni, from any, from no one knowing me to on campus to all of a sudden within a week, everyone, like sort of strangers coming up to me because I could scull a pint in four seconds. Yeah, right. Which was just for, in, you know, it was like, like a party trip, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. And I never drank in Sri Lanka, but I drank a lot of Fanta. And I was able to knock back Fanta, <laughs> which then eased me into yeah. uh, beer, right? Yeah. So I'd go to like the uni pub and a rando would come up to me going, oh, are you the Sri Lankan bloke that can scull pints? Can you scull mine? And like... But also get free grog. Free grog. Yeah. It's the dream, right? <laughs> but but obviously, fast forward 15 years later, it's a problem because I've considered myself, oh, I'm only worthy of people's friendship and yeah. love and respect and people think I'm cool when I'm drunk. And then you start doing comedy and you're getting more free drinks mm. and there's no reason to wake up in the morning till, you know, till yeah. 2 p.m. It just became a mess and I was blackout too often. Rewinding back to you in in, in uh, when you're 21, speaking of identity, and I'm, a lot of our listeners might relate to this, there is a, a version of embarrassment to say you don't drink. You're almost better off saying, oh, I'm, I'm just having the night off than yeah. saying I don't drink anymore. So in country Victoria at the age of 21, saying I'm going to stay off the grog, I imagine would have been a little tough. Yeah, people, when I'd say I didn't drink, people would say, they'd look at you like, you know, and people would go, oh, my father should never trust someone who doesn't drink. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And how's like, your so father more, doing now? I'm He's in jail. Sus- <laughs> I'm under suspicion because I don't drink. What if you? What if they're driving you home? Would you prefer them to be sober or not? So, yeah, definitely. It was a social thing and I was a, 
I was the party guy. And I remember when I was out on a night and, and one of my mates would say, I'm not drinking tonight, I would try to force them to drink. Because <laughs> yeah. you want everyone else to be on the same plane as you. Yeah. So you're like, come on, we're all getting drunk tonight. Don't stay behind. Mm. So, yeah, I was one of the guys who was trying to get other people to drink. So when I stopped drinking, it was, you know what, my friends were remarkably good about it, to be honest. And, I, you know, I've got a lot of big drinking friends who was mm. like, whatever, mate. And I actually was able to sort of operate with those people and still hang out with them. And socially, I was the one who drove everyone home and it was a pain in the ass because yeah. people would be off their heads and I'd be giving them lifts left, right and centre. This was before Uber. So I was, yeah. I was actually really popular. But then I moved actually to Perth where I didn't know anyone. I played Aussie Rules over there in, a, in an amateur club for Scarborough. Yeah. And I'm telling people I don't know that I don't drink. Yeah. That was res- tough. Laugh Resort? Was that it? The Laugh Resort for the comedy, yeah. yeah. And that was, it was a really good spot to start comedy and, and my comedy career went well pretty quickly. Isn't but- there a nut stat, something like with the... Your first gig and Rove's first gig. Actually, Rove said that I inspired him to start comedy because uh, I went so badly. He, <laughs> he was like, if I let if I let him do it, well, then I can do it as well. So you naturally inspire people by being bad rather than good. But that was tricky though when you when you're talking to people you don't know and then you're telling me you don't drink at a footy club. It's like mm. that was tough. But you know, I I was doing it for a reason because I was hopeless. I was a hopeless drunk and I yeah. would always embarrass myself. And it's. Uh, I'd much prefer to deal with the embarrassment of telling people you don't drink rather than embarrassment of right. like, vomiting on yourself or just ending up in a park in the middle of the night knowing, not knowing how you got there. Yeah. I remember you had a stand-up bit about uh, walking the street and seeing a street sign that said Brooklyn. Yeah, that's a true story. That was, I was, we went to the one-day cricket once in, in Melbourne and I was living in Warrnambool at the time and we say like, we had a trip, you know, a boys' trip to the cricket and they only had light beer at the cricket at that time. So me and another, a couple other guys said, we don't want to be at the cricket and drinking light beer mm. when we could be at the pub drinking full-strength beer. Mm. So we went to the pub and I got absolutely hammered and I was meant to be staying in Melbourne and I, I just remember coming to in some random street in Melbourne not knowing where I was meant to be staying. So I had mm. no idea the address I was meant to be staying at. So yeah. I'm just wandering around and, and, yeah, I ended up, I think I'm pretty sure I walked across the Westgate Bridge. <laughs> Look, I, it sounds unbelievable, but I ended up in Western Melbourne, so yeah. which you only can get to really by walking across the Westgate Bridge or uh-huh. getting across the Westgate Bridge. And I, yeah, there was a phone booth at the time where I'm like, God, I need a taxi. So I rang the taxi from the phone booth and they said, where are you? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and they said, well, we can't pick you up. We don't know where you are. And so then I looked I looked on the sign it said Brooklyn. And I thought, well, am I in America? So, <laughs> but if you don't know, Melbourne has a suburb called Brooklyn in western, right. western suburbs of Melbourne. So uh, In my first week in Australia, I had one where I didn't know the difference between beer and champagne and spirits. I just yeah. thought. So I was able to sculpt pints of beer Ooh. and hold my own. Yeah. And then the champagne came out and, and I didn't. Dangerous. This was on a pub crawl or yeah. something like that. And I'm and all of a sudden, you know, this legend from Sri Lanka. And by the way, I had a backpack and a, and a bum bag with my passport and all these documents because you know, I, I was so nervous. And all of a sudden I'm on a pub crawl with these randos and they buy me drinks and stuff. So the ego is flying through the roof. Champagne bottle comes out. I skull nearly half of it thinking it's the same as beer, you know, and then blackout. And they're trying to wake me up going, hey, we need to send you home. And I genuinely didn't know why I lived. Of course. And then luckily for me, 
in my bum bag, I had the lease agreement because <laughs> I was still <laughs> carrying that. So I was like, oh, well, I found it. I'm on, I'm on Ligon Street. It was just around the corner. On that sort of a topic, on this mad night, I ended up back in front of the uh, country train station. Like uh-huh. The trains will get you to the Warnable, the country town I'm from. And so I'm waiting at the front of the train station for a train to go home, even though, you know, my friends were on a bus, but I'd lost them. Yeah. The police turned up and they asked me what I was doing because I was obviously looking like... Uh-huh. And they said, what's your name? And I could not remember my own name. I could not remember my own name. And they're like, the police are going, you are a smart ass. You're coming back to the police station. And I'm like, guys, I'm sorry, but I can't remember my name. And they thought I was lying. And then eventually, as they're putting me into the back of the divvy van, I said, oh, hang on, I've probably got my license on me. So I showed them my license. And they said, that's all we wanted. And I said, all right, well, there, there you, go. you go. And they let Dude, me out. I wonder whether subconsciously you decided to become so famous that everyone can tell you who you are <laughs> instead of you having to remember. Exactly. <laughs> this is, I think, comes to the core of the problem, at least for me. All those stories have an element of joy or funny or humor to it that I didn't realize the warning signs in those stories. Yeah. Staying sober is hard. I'm not going to lie. Even six years on in sobriety, especially during the lockdown, but it sounds like when you had 21, you know, just switched the gear and you went, I'm not drinking again. Yeah, well, look, I remember reading something, I don't know, it was in the newspaper or somewhere where it, it, it said that well, if you ever lose memory while you're drinking, you're losing brain cells. And I thought, well, that's every time I drink. So I felt like I was killing my brain. Yeah. And I thought, do I want to kill my brain? And I was. It, it depressed me. The, the loss of control, uh, you know, led to me being depressed. And so, yeah, it was, it was controlling my emotions and... I just thought, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And I, I stopped. I did. I stopped for six weeks. I thought I'll get to Christmas. It was in November, and I, you know, had a lot of incidents of being locked up. Mm. But I'll get to Christmas sober, and I'll see how I go then. But I got to Christmas Eve, and I like thought, and that was the moment where I thought, hang on, if I start again today, I'm just going to be exactly like I was. I'm just not going to do it anymore. And so that was the moment. So it was yeah. Christmas Eve. 1992, where I decided to not drink again, and here we are 30 years later, yeah. and I haven't drunk again, and, you know, life has worked out for me. I've had a really good <laughs> life, you know, really good life. I was going to say it was as well, as much as it was probably the pain of how bad it got, do you reckon finding comedy and realizing that, oh, hey, this is something I love and I want to get good at, and this drinking would impede my ability. Was there a motivator? I knew I could control my mind. I knew Uh that alcohol was controlling me and I didn't want it to control me. So I thought, you know, anything that you're addicted to controls you. I want to control me. I want to make my own decisions. I don't want to have my decisions made by a substance. I don't even know if I would have started comedy if I had kept drinking. I don't reckon I would have had the the balls or the mental strength, even though I know it's all ridiculous and nothing can hurt you. But it still takes a mental strength to start that path. Would you describe yourself as having a addictive personality? Yes. And what does that mean? Well, it means that an example is that I took up vaping recently. I went, but 30 years ago, I gave up marijuana, which I was addicted to as well. I gave up drinking, mm. same, and I gave up smoking, which is just addictive. Nic- nicotine is so addictive. So for 30 years, I was completely and utterly sober, didn't touch any of those things. Mm. Election night this year, federal election night, uh, someone handed me a vape these vapes, I, I started, I had a go at it. I asked the person if it had nicotine in it and they said no. So I had a go at it and it relaxed me and I thought this is a bit of fun. And so I had a, a few goes and then I was driving home that night. I put it in my glove box and a week later I remembered it was there mm. and I took it out as I'm on the driving to the airport and I had another go. And again, it, I thought, God, this is giving me a bit of a buzz. Uh-huh. And before you know it, I was sucking on a vape 
all day, every day. For six months, I'm I'm hooked on vaping again. I'm back on nicotine, fully, and I'm hiding it from my family. I'm I'm uh, where I'm at so the patterns wise. It was just yes. like any other. I'm at the movies with the kids, and and I'm just ducking off to the toilets to suck on my vape, so they don't know I'm doing it. I'm proud to say, about uh-huh. five weeks ago, I stopped vaping. Okay, so and now I can never vape again. If I could do things in moderation. I would do them. Uh I just can't do things in moderation. That speaks a lot to me as well, and I find it frustrating. I feel like I am less than my mates who are able to stop at three drinks. I cannot fathom people who can stop. I think it's a magic trick. It's not a magic trick to not drink for 30 years. Mm. It's a magic trick to have two beers and then to go, that's The Dave O'Neill's. People who, my (laughs) wife has got... She could have a drink and just one drink and then not think about it again for three months. I don't you know? understand it. I don't get that. <laughs> so, yeah, some people I look at and I think you shouldn't drink. You're, you're like me. Yeah. You're someone who can't stop. And I think maybe having conversations like this has at least helped me realize I'm not alone. Like you feel... Mm. You feel broken that, oh, I don't have that mechanism. I, I refer to it as my handbrake. I just don't have a handbrake, yeah, right? Yeah. And I felt less than because, oh, you know, my mates or my brother or whatever, they have such good handbrakes. Yeah. And I'm like, why not me? And feeling shit about it. And all of a sudden I'm like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay that you don't have it. In fact, you should be proud that in spite of not having it, you've decided to choose yes. the lesser of two evils, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and try and be okay. And so meeting people like you, I think it will help a lot of people knowing that it's okay if you're someone who can't handle your grog. Yeah. Some people shouldn't drink and it's okay not to drink. And you know what? Your life can be better for not drinking. Yeah. You know? So, and it's, and yeah, I, I say that to people. I don't, I, I try not to preach, but I say you can be someone who doesn't drink. And people often think I'm drunk and they often, they definitely always think I've got a hangover. So I've got a terrible... <laughs> Head in the mornings and maybe all day. Just need to moisturise. <laughs> I've got to moisturise. I actually had a facial the other day, and the woman said, "Oh, well, it's done wonders." My skin. She said, "My skin is challenging." So I said, "Well, come on, accept the challenge." Yeah. As, a, as a person of colour, I don't know what you mean because we don't crack. You I know, know. my wife's Sri Lankan as well, half Sri Lankan. So I wish I had her skin. And our children are certainly are lucky; they've got her uh, genes in the skin department. So, but I'm, I'm a I'm I've got the Irish drunken background, so not good skin or drinking habits, basically. But there's something, though, that I want to finish up on, which is around the idea that when you can accept, okay, this is what I'm made of and it doesn't suit oozing or drugs and things like that, but maybe I can channel it into things that are going to make my life better. Mm. And I feel like you're a great example of that where you were channeling it into comedy. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like you've gone, okay, I have this in me, I'm going to just channel it into healthier areas? Yeah, look, the comedy is, uh, I think, a healthy addiction for me. My wife would probably think it's not. And that is another thing where I I really feel the need to do stand-up comedy especially, and I love it. Yeah. And so yeah, that is, I think that's a healthy addiction, but she, but she would possibly say that I do that too much as well, you know? It's funny, I, I actually just remembered a story there, which is during the pandemic, there was, you know, people trying to figure out how, how can we somehow survive in as live comedians. And there was a gig offer that came from a fairly, you know, well-known accounting thing. Hit me up, said, hey, we'd love you to do stand-up for 20 minutes, 500 bucks or something like that. And meanwhile, there was a different rate that people were paying. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, no, nah, that's ridiculous. I'm like, nah, I, it's, too low, it's, yeah. it's too low. Yeah, I'm not yeah, going to do yeah. it. And I said, uh, asked my management, I was like, oh, can you push back and say, try and get more money? They're like, we'll try, but it doesn't look good because 
couple of weeks ago, Husey had done it for 400. <laughs> I, no, like, I, I know who that. that, that <laughs> no, I was no, like, I'm, what are you doing? I'm not saying, yeah, no, I, I yeah, understand. I can reduce the rates for everyone else. But that was my actual sister in law okay, work. Okay, fair my enough. My sister in law worked for that company. So that was not <laughs> to say I, I can be had very cheap. Don't you no, worry about no, that. No, I'm not putting that but out that publicly. That one in particular was my sister in law. <laughs> but it felt like. Who I told her to keep that quiet. <laughs> I said, yes, I'll do it for that, but don't tell anyone. So, yeah, that's funny. But, but it, was, it was that moment of me going, this guy needs to. <laughs> but, again, I'll do it for free as well. You know, well don't don't put do, that out in I'll public. do it for free. I'll turn up. See, I'll, you've got the junkie vibe oh, yeah. still going there. I think anything in life, if you can recognize when it tips over, right? Yeah. And so with comedy for you, genuinely, I look at you in terms of not your material or your style of comedy, but your love and approach to the work. I have that same quote-unquote problem. Yeah. Like if I don't do a set, I'm feeling weird. And I remember chatting to you going, well, this is your last vice. Yes. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, but that and hot chips. I can't give up hot chips. I've not been able to give up hot chips. <laughs> I'd love to. But look. balance, right? Don't you think, put it this way, I would love to be your lawyer in that sense of going, well, he's quit everything else. Yeah, exactly. Can yeah. he hand and not have this or do you feel like she's got a point? No, I don't think she's got a point. I think I, <laughs> look, it's my passion and look, it's, I said to, I've said to her, look, I mean, I was addicted to comedy long before I met you, so... And I have given up everything else, so just let me get on stage. <laughs> I think that's okay. Yuzi, thank you so much for joining me on this uh, episode, man. That's really, really insightful. And I genuinely, I, I, to be a bit sincere, I think it's really helpful for listeners to know that you recognize that if you had been drinking, this wouldn't have been your life. Yeah. And that for some of us, not drinking is the better way to live. Absolutely. It's, I'm a happier person, basically. And uh, yeah, and you can too if you think it's an issue. If this episode has caused you any concerns or if you would like to reach out to anyone for support, there are a number of free services that offer guidance and help through addiction. A good first call would be to reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14, but we will also list some additional resources in the description for this episode. Next time on The Driver's Seat, I'm going to get personal about your relationships. And not in a creepy way. Grow up. As someone who works on the road a lot, I know how hard it can be to maintain a strong relationship with anyone. We have already spoken about how important it is to surround yourself with the right people. So how can you do that in today's busy world, especially if you spend a lot of time away from people? CEO of Relationship Australia, Elizabeth Shaw, joins me. So it is absolutely essential for our well-being and that people who are lonely, it's equivalent to smoking nine cigarettes a day, you know, in terms of health effects. I think there's a lot of science behind why it is critical to be around healthy, strong relationships. Technology expert Trevor Long talks about the tools that are available to maintain connections with your loved ones while you're away. How about this one? There's one called the Love Box Messenger. Right, think of it like a, I don't want to say Jack in the Box, but it's a little wooden box. All right, on the front of the wooden box. We've got to find a different name than Love Box because my my brain keeps going to other places. And speaking of people that are on the road a lot, I catch up with the Lin Fox driver to talk about how he stays connected while he's driving. The support of your family is one of the major things that helps that bond between work and home life sort of mesh. I've gone along with different industries because at that time I've needed to change to suit my home life. That's next time on The Driver's Seat. Listener.